Good morning, everyone. My name is Will. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Press. And uh, Merry Christmas. Glad that you're here. Uh, if you are joining us for the first time, uh, Christmas is a good Sunday to pick. And it's good to see all your faces and be able to worship with you. Um, we're just going to get right into it. Let me read a passage about Christmas. And before I read this passage, it comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, they always say on Christmas Sundays or leading up to Christmas Sunday, say, they will say from the pulpit, let's talk about the real meaning of Christmas. And that's what we're going to do. But I want to try to hopefully explain to you if this is the one Sunday you come to church to help you understand that the gospel and the Christmas message uh, endured the test of time. It speaks to the depths of what all philosophers and theologians are trying to answer for the purpose of life and humanity. It speaks to your heart. It also speaks against the culture in terms of the different theologies and worldviews and philosophies and say the Christian message is not only the most heartfelt and compassionate, it's the most rational and intellectually coherent. And that could speak up against into this world that is definitely and desperately vying for your thoughts and your worldviews and your heart. And so that's a big promise, but I think Matthew encapsulates all of this. So I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of his word. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. This is the birth of Jesus Christ. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until he had given birth to her son, and he called his name Jesus. And this is God's word. You could take your seats at this time. Well, clearly this is a, a birth announcement of the highest magnitude and order having cosmic and global implications and reaches literally to the ends of the universe. You know, birth announcements tend to be an exciting time, and for some of us, maybe it's a heartbreaking time for those who thought they would give birth, but God had other plans for that. But a birth announcement is an exciting time, isn't it? You know, people announce the birth of their coming child in different ways. You know, there's a gender reveal all kinds of creative things that I keep learning about. But here you have one of the, if not the greatest birth announcement ever announced in the history of mankind. And I want to make the argument that this birth was completely different from any other birth in the world, literally, figuratively, and spiritually. This birth announcement, as great as it was, was wrapped up in controversy. It was confusing. It was a birth announcement into the lowly and to the down and out. It wasn't made through social media, but it was made by an angel. It wasn't made to the entire world, but to one lowly couple, Joseph and Mary. 
Joseph has this announcement that the woman he's betrothed to is pregnant. It wasn't his kid. He wasn't the father. And that immediately struck controversy and panic, as you can imagine, in Joseph. It's utterly unique to Christianity. No other religion would announce the birth of their Savior in such controversial and ordinary ways. Now, if you're trying to start a legend, like some of the critics say, you would never write a legend or fable with your main hero in Jesus or your main figure and Savior being birthed in such ordinary ways. It's just not the way that you would create a legend. So the only reason we know that Matthew did this was probably because that's just the way that it happened. It's different from the birth of Greek gods, demigods, where the gods of the Greek thought would marry and have kids with human mothers, and it was really born out of chaos and a striving for power is different from Hindu's avatar. If you ever watch the sequel these days, where the gods would come down, but it really wasn't the god. They would just wear an avatar, a mask, a costume, and that's how they dwell in the world here. But Jesus' birth is very different in kind, but also its mission. I want to talk about that with you here today because I think there's something intensely practical for your lives here today. Verse 21 tells us the birth of Jesus and his mission, his purpose. Why did Jesus come into this world this way? She says, she will bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. At the end of the day, that's what's different from the Greek gods and demigods, from the social media, from the Hindu's avatar. This God comes into confusion and chaos to save you and me from our sins. What is his mission? To be with you, to love you and to save you. I want to talk about three different parts of this, this birth announcement that I think we could relate to and hopefully apply and to imbibe in our lives. You know, one, I want to talk about a broken world that Jesus is born into. Secondly, I want to talk about a humility that Jesus imbibed as he was born. And thirdly, talk about his name, which tells us how our community and life should be lived. So he was born into brokenness, he was born with humility, and he has a very special name, Jesus or Emmanuel, that really characterizes our culture and our time here today as a church. So let's look at this. The first reality is that Jesus was born into brokenness. Now the account is interesting because it's very detailed, it's historical. And because it's historical, Matthew captures all these details that normally you don't really write about, and the only reason that you could write about these details is because it's an eyewitness account. And it's telling us this is really what happened. So for example, Matthew talks about Joseph's motives in verse 19. He was unwilling to put Mary to shame. He wanted to divorce her, but to divorce her quietly, and not he wasn't angry. He was thinking about and processing all that's happened. He tells us that he's pondering this stuff in verse 20. Details. Even this sort of inconsequential detail in verse 24, Joseph woke up. He only write this because it's a historical account. It's an eyewitness account. It's all historical. It was real. Even though there's something miraculous, it tells us the burden of proof really lies upon people who are skeptics and those who think Christianity is not intellectually robust. They have a big burden to prove because my case is to say, why would you start a legend, so to speak, and a movement of Christianity that standed the test of time by writing details like this? And I think it was because that's what really happened. And that's, if that's the case, then verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
Now, if you're even open to saying, well, all these details say this is really a historical account. You never write a legend in this way. Verse 18, give it a shot. Maybe verse 18 is actually true. Matthew really wants to know that this wasn't any birth but a virgin birth, a miraculous birth from the Holy Spirit. Verse 19 says, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man, he was righteous, he was holy. Let me try to explain something to you about the New Testament concept of being betrothed. It's not just a marriage setup that some of the more traditional Eastern countries do. It's much deeper than this. In that day and age, when Joseph and Mary were betrothed to one another, they were legally married. They acted if they were married. That's why when Joseph comes to Mary and finds out that she's pregnant, he's thinking, I need to divorce her. Because it's not an engagement, it's not just a setup. It was a cultural understanding, contractual arrangement to say when you're betrothed, it was legally bound to be married. And so when Joseph finds that Mary is expecting a child, she's naturally, he's naturally assuming, oh my gosh, this wife of mine has already committed adultery. He's, she's been unfaithful. And it doesn't say in the verses, but I'm sort of reading into it, I'm assuming his heart was broken. I mean, what would you think? You know, you're the woman that you think you're going to be with all of a sudden is pregnant. You didn't know this. What would you feel and how would you resonate with that? What would you explain to yourself about the happenings that's happening around you with this unpredictable pregnancy? And this is what Joseph does. He thought about her. He was other-centered. Because in that day and age, when you marry a woman because it was a misogynistic, patriarchal society, a woman's well-being and livelihood was entirely bound up with her children and her husband. Because if they found out that Mary was an adulteress, they would immediately stone her. The Roman government was pretty harsh back then. Her status and financial security was completely bound up in her ability to be married and to be marriageable. So if she was found to be an adulteress, that means her whole future was uncertain and was basically down the tubes. She could die for her adultery. She could lose her status. She would not be able to marry, provide sustenance for herself and even for her child-to-be. So Joseph knows all this. Now he's pondering in verse 20. He understands the future of this woman. So what does Joseph want to do? Well, verse 19 tells us, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. That's why he's a just man. That word just means he's righteous. That's the kind of man Joseph is. See, one thing about Joseph, even though he's almost on every nativity scene and every children's ministry, VBS, or whatever play that the church puts on, Joseph here, what's interesting is that he doesn't say one word. There's not one word that's recorded of what Joseph says. Not one word that Joseph is recorded to have said in the Bible and yet, in Matthew's account, he's given a vitally important role at the beginning of all this history in the life of Jesus. You know why? Because he's not recorded by the words that he said. He's recorded by the character of his conduct, that he was a just man. He was righteous. He orders his life in faith and obedience under God. And that's what Joseph is known for, a righteous man, which means he's compassionate. He cares deeply for Mary, so wants to divorce her quietly so that she has a chance, maybe just a chance, to get married again and have a future for her life. This is what I'm trying to say. What would you do if you were Joseph or Mary? Jesus was born into this controversy and this chaos. 
In other words, if you ever thought about it, the greatest message in all of humanity, the Christmas message, was about Jesus. Christmas was a message that began with an almost divorce, began with a visibly adulterous relationship, even though that's not really the case. But that tells us the essential and fundamental purpose of Christmas messaging is to know that the God of Christianity sent his son Jesus to be born into a world that's broken and hurting and painful, a world that has broken relationships, uncertainty, confusion. It implies that God cares about the details of your life, the relationships that you live with, the brokenness of your past relationship, the shattering of your heart. Jesus didn't come from the perfect. He came for the broken. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for the sinner. In other words, he came for you and me. Christmas is a time when depression spikes. Loneliness feels a little bit sharper. Christmas highlights friends and family and great relationships, but if you don't have that, it highlights the absence and longing from a world for a world that we don't have. And the birth of Jesus tells us he came for all that. He was born into an almost divorce, into chaos and confusion. And that should give us a level of comfort to say that there is a God of Christianity that comes to dwell for the very realities and experiences of my life that I don't think I should have. Craig Hamilton has once said this. He knows what it's like to be us. He knows it's from the inside. Jesus didn't just dip his toe into our world, the world marked by corruption and rebellion. He entered all the way in. God sent his son into a world of rebellion and corruption, a world enslaved under the power of sin, a power and selfishness of self-adulation, self-aggrandizement, self-centeredness, and self-centric tendencies. Jesus came into that world to save us from ourselves without ever in no way succumbing to the rebellion or sin himself. You know what that means very practically? I don't know your life story, at least not all of you. Have you ever been tempted to sin? Have you ever had money issues? Have you ever been ripped off? Have you ever been lonely? Have you ever been afraid? Have you ever been made fun of and bullied? Have you ever had a family that doesn't support you or rejected you? Have you ever had friends that aren't there for you when you needed them the most? Have you ever had friends who you thought were there for you and talked behind your back? Have you ever had lies and rumors spread about you? Have you ever been lonely and isolated? Have you ever had someone close to you pass away and you're walking in mourning? Have you ever had the biggest obstacle you're facing in your life and you need a little bit of courage? Jesus came in for all of that into this world to live here among you, to live with you and inside of you. He came here where everything breaks, where nothing lasts, where there's both beauty and brokenness, where there's ashes, but there's a new heavens and earth, where precious things are lost, but eternal things are gained. Jesus knows what that's like. He knows not just the cosmic scope of how he's saving the universe, but he knows the details of your life. He was born into an almost divorce. He knows that. He gets it. The author of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 15, captures the same thought, talking about Jesus as our pastor. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He gets it. He went the distance. He knows every struggle and pain that you have because he was born into brokenness. And that's something entirely, completely unique to what Christianity offers, something that's real and honest about life. And this leads us to our second point. 
Jesus wasn't just born into brokenness. He was born demonstrating and saturated in humility. Let me try to explain why I choose the word humility. It's interesting to see that the Savior of the universe comes as a helpless baby, that when we looked at the prophets Isaiah and Micah, Jesus wasn't born into a palace, but into urine and into a manger, into dirty hay and straw and grass. Who knows how dirty that place would have been. That's because Jesus comes as a helpless baby in humility. And that was completely unexpected to the world out there. You know, the world basically had at that point, maybe in the New Testament context, sort of a Greek worldview or maybe a Jewish worldview. You're one or the other, basically. Sort of a secular Roman worldview or a very religious worldview. You have an irreligious worldview or a religious one. But in Greek thought, when you think about power and think about a savior, they had a lot of thoughts and core values about power and control in Greek mythology. And that power and control over others was the greatest achievement and the highest good for man to be the most powerful. And that's what's reflected in Greek mythology, that every character was striving to achieve as much power as they could. And in order to gain that dominance and power, most of the characters in Greek mythology had to use deceptive and fraudulent tactics. But these tactics were learned from earlier generations, from their mom and dad. And they were tweaked for future success. So they would learn about fraudulent tactics to achieve power, and they would tweak it to make the fraudulent tactics a little bit more effective. That was the path of all kinds of Greek gods like Kronos and Zeus. In the poem of Theogony, the Greek family of relationships between the husband and wife and their children is essentially a repeated cycle built on the characteristics of power and deceit and achievement that maintained the family dynamic in Greek life. And by the way, it's not just Greek life. You know, there's the award-winning show Succession about the corporate life of a family in the media industry. It's the same sort of concept. That's how the Greeks thought about it. The greatest good is to control more power. As one character has once said, it feels great to be rich because you have the world under control. The Jewish mindset, the religious mindset, was a little bit different. The Jewish mindset was a little bit ethnocentric. Now, it wasn't just about power over money and over people, not just that. The Jewish first century hope was certainly about power, but it was political. It was economic power. Their savior, the Messiah that we looked at in Isaiah and Micah, was the power of a savior and a Messiah that would come to restore Israel back to its former glorious days, to reinstate the kingdom of David as a fulfillment of the messianic kingdom, the restoration of the hope of the first century Jewish people to be the world-dominating culture, community, and nation. That's how Jewish people thought. And so when the Savior finally comes and speaks into a world where there's thousands of years of Jewish expectation and speaks into a world in which there's irreligious, secular, Roman, and Greek thinking, it busts both worldviews up and turns it up inside out and upside down on his head. It speaks into the Greek world and said, well, real power is actually not trying to use fraudulent tactics to achieve more control, but actually to give up your control and to empower other people. It's not about social class and status according to the Roman thinking, but to say that I was born into brokenness and in a manger to say actually true status comes from humility and being last in the kingdom of God. And it's telling the Jewish people, yes, I came back to restore a kingdom of power, but not through political and economic might. 
but a spiritual kingdom that doesn't just stay ethnocentrically to a Jewish culture, but expands to the ends of the world. It doesn't stay to the educated and those who are into the greatest schools of reciting Jewish law, but it comes to the homeless and the poor and the hurting and to the broken. That's why Jesus came in humility. Verse 23 says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the prophet Isaiah, verse 14. The virgin shall conceive a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Both in concepts of power and control, Jesus revolutionizes those notions. He did come in power, but a sacrificing one. He did come in power, but a forgiving one. He did come in power, but he's clothed in humility in a manger. Friends, what does this mean for you? It speaks against your heart, too. Your idea for more acclamation, more affirmation, to build up your resume, your LinkedIn account. Sure, if you've grown up in the church, you don't say that outwardly, but in your heart of hearts, is that what you strive for? Is that what we're teaching our children? Children, is that what you're striving for? That you want to be the best. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with striving to be the best. It just shouldn't be the ultimate goal in your life. But how does humility come out in the way that you deal with relationships? Now, one historian, Carl Truman, has once said this about the Christmas message. Jesus coming in as a baby who's helpless and innocent, he came in humility. Now, Truman's right if you're a parent. Infants are, in fact, the embodiment of self-love. They want their immediate needs satisfied, and they care for nothing except themselves. That's babies. This is probably the most apparent at 3 a.m. in the morning when your child is screaming with no toy or food, and no person can stop your child, him or her. And that's why the irony of the Christian message this Christian Christmas is that the Savior, Jesus Christ, comes not because of any need of his own or any desire to fulfill selfishly or inwardly. This Christmas child is born in a manger and considers it not robbery to be equal with God, but humbles himself by taking the form of his servant in order to be obedient even to the point of death on the cross. In this humility, this empowerment, which is heavenly and otherworldly, is how it should characterize us in the way we approach life and our relationships to one another. How do you know very practically that someone gets the Christmas message of humility in this way? Pretty simple. They're humble when they relate to other people. They're gracious. Humble people are humble towards one another. Loving people Loved people are loving to one another. Forgiven people forgive one another. It's the one who's not very gracious and the one who's judgmental and critical and self-righteous and judges everyone without looking at the log in their own eye. That's a person who never really fully understands the Christmas message. Jesus had every right, actually, to demand, but rather he served. This is what I once heard about the Christian message, about the love of God shown in his son Jesus that really permeates the people, us, you, and I. The people don't fall out of love. They fall out of forgiveness. How do you know that someone gets a Christian message? It's not just you fall out of love, you fall out of forgiveness. Hurt people hurt. 
Forgiven people forgive. Self-righteous people use people. Humble people love and serve people. And that's all encapsulated by this ironic birth of the greatest, most powerful Savior in the world, born as a helpless human baby. You know, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin has said it this way, heaven and earth met and kissed one another, namely God and man. And that's a Christian message. The Jesus is born into brokenness. He was born with humility. He shows it to us. And lastly, we're going to look at the fundamental identity. Let's look at Jesus' name. Because every birth, once you name, you have to come up with a name. For some of us, I know it's a very arduous process. You, know, you think about it for months on end. But Jesus' name was easy. He had two. It says it right there. His name was Jesus, which means Savior for sinners, salvation. But in the code in Isaiah chapter 7, he's also known as Emmanuel. They're basically the same thing. Jesus' name is identified with his mission. I'm going to save people, and I'm going to be with my people. Names are important today as it was back then. But back then, naming was the responsibility of the legal father. You know, different families do it differently. You know, sometimes it's the wife's parents, sometimes it's the husband's parents. But back then, names was the responsibility of the legal father and ensure the official status and rights and the privileges of the firstborn son. You know, daughters and women, it was a misogynist society. You didn't really have many rights. So the legal father named the son to carry forth the name, but also all the inherited wealth. And it's passed on to the next generation. You can sort of see this formula. I know in verse 16 it says this. We didn't really read this, but it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So it's the father of. That's why you see in the genealogies in Matthew chapter 1, it's the father of, the father of. That's just because the legal father had the right to name the son. So given the fact that God through Joseph named Jesus, is telling because Joseph didn't name Jesus. The legal father named Jesus. Who is the legal father? God the father. Jesus had the status and rights that were passed on from God the father to Jesus as the reigning king. That's why his name is Jesus, which means salvation has come to us. But it also says his name is Emmanuel. It means that he came out to hang out with us, to be with us, to dwell with us. That's verse 23. See, verse 23 says Jesus came to dwell among us. And then later in the last chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, what does it say in the Great Commission? Lo and behold, I will be with you forever. These are the bookends of the Gospel of Matthew, the mission of Jesus Christ. I'm going to come to save you from your sins and be with you. Chapter 1, Emmanuel, but I'm also my resurrection power, redemptive historically. When he raises from the dead, Jesus says in the Great Commission, I'm always going to be with you. He's always going to dwell with you, to change you, to love you, to saturate his character and his godliness, to wrap you around his love shown to you in the cross. That's the message of Christmas. God, come in the Son, Jesus, to die for your sins and mine, to be with you forever, to show us with crystal clarity and 8K vision what God, Emmanuel, really means with a baby born in a manger. Let me end the message in this way. The name of God. Uh, some of you, there's this article that's been going around in the Wall Street Journal written by Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. She wrote this article called, When Mary Met the Angel, and she's talking and basing this off of Luke chapter 1, where the announcement was made to Mary, but Matthew, he shows it as the announcement being made to Joseph 
it's just a different perspective. Rebecca McLaughlin, she's a PhD at University of Cambridge. She's a Christian. She's done TED Talks. Her niche is talking about the power of rhetoric and words, especially in the gospel, and she trains professors in higher ed to know how to integrate their work in higher education with Christianity. But in this article, when Mary met the angel, I'm just summarizing some of her thoughts as the name of God in the mission to be with us. She highlights in her own unique way, with her own unique words, just the uniqueness of the Christian message that speaks against everything in this world. She said, 2,000 years ago, a young woman in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire received a message that would change the world. But friends, think about this. This message from 2,000 years ago actually started at the beginning of time in Genesis, but this message had lasting power. It exploded onto the scene. Acts chapter 2, there was mega churches being developed in the early days of Christianity, and it continues to gain momentum even today. So at one point in the article, it says this, far from being a white Western religion, Christianity was multi-ethnic from the first. And today, Christians are by far the world's most racially and culturally diverse religious groups. Theologians and sociologists say by 2060, 40% of the world's population could live in sub-Saharan Africa. And though China is the pinnacle and the hub and the global center of atheism, there will, be seen, there will soon be more Christians in China than in the U.S., potentially leading the Christian world with the most number of Christians by 2060. So even though in America they're saying we're living in a post-Christian world, which I'm not really sure if that's the case, when you think globally, because you and I, both in our hearts and a postmodern world, like just to think about ourselves as if we're the center of the universe, that's not necessarily the case. For many years now, Christianity is thriving in the southern hemisphere of our globe. Why is it thriving? Why does it have lasting power? No legend ever written had this sort of world-changing effects. And Christianity has all its detrimental effects too. You know, it's wrapped up in abuse. It's wrapped up in hypocrisy. Even myself, we're not perfect. Christianity doesn't claim to be that. But you have to account for the fact that this message of Christmas still is thriving and it's growing and it's exploding and gaining momentum even across the globe. It's unique in that way, friends. Yeah, sure, it's hard to believe in a virgin birth, so they say, you know, scientists they have a hard time with Christianity because it seems too much like mythology and you have to kind of make things up. But if you give it a real intellectual engagement, it takes just as much faith to reject the existence of God and to reject Christianity as much faith to reject Christianity as it does to believe in Christianity. Just read other people who are a lot smarter than me because even in the article, McLaughlin goes on and says, well, the professor of physics at University of Cambridge, Russell Calburn, who became a Christian later on in his life, essentially describes that science is the description of how God chooses to work most of the time. We know that dead bodies don't come back to life. And yet Christianity is built on the observation that Jesus came back to life. And he says, I'm very happy to say that at that very special moment, God was acting a little bit differently. He was acting supernaturally. You say, well, he's suspending all his like, scientific belief, but science only coheres when you have an absolute God that created and designed science. But at least you can engage it. That's why it's building momentum. You can think about Christian ethics, God with us. Did you know the Roman government, even Jewish theology? No one talked about the poor. 
Christianity was the only one, especially in the early days, that showed the world what it looks like to actually minister to the poor. It disrupted the economy back in the New Testament world. It created problems for those who were in upper management but were not Christian. It revolutionized perspective of human dignity because it's not just that they're imperializing their beliefs, but they were learning from the poor and they were serving, loving them, and using their resources in a way in which Christianity exploded, and it should be like that today too. What about equality? Did you know that actually based on the doctrine of image of God, that was one of the main reasons that in a misogynistic culture of the New Testament, Christianity actually was the message that placed women on equal footing to be equal in dignity, power, and rights as much as a man. Christianity did this. That's why Christianity is disproportionately more female as compared to other religions, the second and third largest, which is Islam and Hinduism. So I'm sure there's a lot of fact-checking, but at least you have to deal with the basic premise. There's a message of Christianity that speaks against, it rubs against the world. So why would Jesus be Emmanuel? Why would he be God with us? Why would God become man? Why would he live in poverty and die in agony? Why would the king of all creation come not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many? According to the Christmas story, it was because he loved every human being. Rich and poor, weak and strong, enslaved or free. He paid the price for human sin. Sin is not a world that the secular world likes. It's a word we may not choose to use, but it's a reality we hit upon when we bewail justice and injustice in this world and wonder why it's so hard to fix the brokenness of this world. Christians believe that the Son of God was born to die so that all who trust in him could live as sons and daughters of God, wrapped up more tightly in his love upon the cross, more tightly in the love of God than the newborn Jesus was wrapped up tightly in Mary's swaddling cloths. That's Christianity. That's the message of Christmas. Even on a personal level, if you feel like you are not seen or heard or validated or loved, Christianity doesn't just speak to the wide worldviews of our culture, but it speaks into the everyday hard experiences of a regular person like you and me. He sees your marriages that are tough day in and day out. He sees the pressure that students go through in school, trying to get good grades, trying to be popular, trying to say, I want to be unique, but you assimilate the most and easiest to the culture and fashion around you. He sees all that in middle school. He gets it. He sees all the mental health issues that people go through and have been exacerbated through COVID, through loneliness and depression. And Jesus came for that according to Hebrews 4. He sees those who feel like a failure because they want to be more productive, more successful, but you feel like you're not a failure. And Jesus actually says, well, you kind of are a failure, but if you receive my life, I make you a success. That's God, Emmanuel. That's his name. He came in to be the greatest message and the greatest person of all mankind and to give you a hope of hope in your heart of hearts so that you can live this out. New Life Press exists to make an impact in Orange County while making disciples who are gospel-centered, missions-minded, and compassionate. The reason our church exists for that very reason is because of this Christian message 
a God who was born into brokenness, clothed in humility, was other-centered and missional in his thoughts and hearts. That's why at the other bookend of the Gospel of Matthew encapsulates what our mission is at this church. What does he say? Go disciple the nations. How we're broken and however inept we are at doing that, that is what we are about. And that's the essence of the message of Christianity. I pray every one of you would receive this and apply it to your lives. Start in the mirror first and then go out from there. And I promise you the gospel will gain momentum not just in sub-Saharan Africa, but also at New Light Press in Orange County. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this grace and this truth. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us the message of Christmas. That you have come down in your Son to speak into a world of hurt and brokenness. And you show us that real power comes through meekness and humility. And you show us that you live up to the mission of your name, that you are Yeshua and Emmanuel. Thank you for being with us forever till the end of the ages even now. We ask that we would become the people that you've called us to be and created us to be in your son. We ask this in his name. Amen.